Firing line with William F. Buckley, Jr. And Richard Goodwin. Tonight, the new frontier, Great Society. Mr. Richard Goodwin graduated first in his class from the Harvard Law School, which instantly marked him as a dangerous man. He went to Washington to clerk under the former Supreme Court Justice, Mr. Felix Frankfurter, and soon entered government. One of his principal <coughs> early achievements was the discovery that Carl Van Doren didn't really know the names of all the Balearic Islands. And as, <coughs> as an investigator for a congressional committee, he exposed the television quiz show scandals. He caught the eye of Senator John Kennedy, for whom he went to work in 1959, contributing ideas, speeches, intrigues, and a great deal of intellectual zest, all between the ages of 28 and 31. He had much to do with the Peace Corps, and particularly with the Alliance for Progress. He returned to Washington shortly after President Kennedy's death to help Mr. Kennedy's successor devise policies and make English. Uh, it is he, or so the story goes, who created that ominous phrase, the Great Society, in whose service we're all supposed to march hand in hand towards a new dawn. He left President Johnson last fall to do some fresh thinking at Wesleyan University, the fruits of which, uh, let us hope, he is willing to divulge here today. With great pleasure, I welcome, welcome you, Mr. Goodwin. How are things in the world of the intellect? Well, I feel like I've just come to the world of the intellect now, uh, Mr. Buckley. I think it's a pleasure to be here with you there. <laughs> I think in any society, uh, I think particularly in a great society, it's important that there be an intellectual force on the right. And I think that all of us are very glad that you're, uh, you are that force, that uh, your qualities of intelligence are rich and you have a lot of capacity. It makes us all want to keep you here. I think that's why we come to this program and, uh, and uh, listen to you and try and participate with you. I'm going to dissolve at this rate. I'm not used to being treated yeah. so kindly, but thank well, you. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's <coughs> when we think of the alternative, you know, we might, if you left or something, you might get somebody who was mean and sharp and nasty and <laughs> unwilling to do, debate the issue. But as long as you're there, I think it protects, in, as you call it, the civilities of discourse in a, in a free society. Uh, like well, Go ahead. well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm terribly anxious to hear from you since you are, I think, his principal intellectual architect, something about the structure and scope and ambitions of the great society, <coughs> especially <coughs> since if you consider to pile up those democratic uh, pluralities, we're all going to be pretty well uh, enthralled to your ideas. So what, what do you have in store for us, uh, Mr. Goodwin? Well, I think that the great society, uh, to the extent that it is a concept or an idea, represents a... Uh, a change or a breaking point from the ideas of the New Deal. I think the essential idea of the behind the New Deal was that rising prosperity, more equitably distributed among the people, would solve most of the problems of the country, and that the effort was directed in that way. Now, having uh, succeeded, not completely, but uh, quite a degree in that effort, having lifted national prosperity and distributed it more equitably to many of our citizens, we find it doesn't solve the major problems, the kinds of problems you talked <coughs> about in your campaign, the beautification of the cities, the nature of living in the society, quality of education. And that now we have to turn our attention not 
only or simply or perhaps primarily to relief of the poor and the dispossessed, but to the quality of life of every American, the type of environment he lives in, the opportunity he gets to develop his talent, the artistic uh, endeavor and uh, area. And I think that's what the Great Society represents, <coughs> a turn from the quantitative goals of the New Deal to qualitative goals. And Gentlemen, may, may we continue this discourse in just a moment after this message? Uh, <coughs> Mr. Goodwin, isn't what is distinctive about the Great Society uh, not so much that you seek uh, the quality of the Ameri uh, quality for American life rather than necessarily purely a superabundance of goods for the American people, but that you view the, the government as the principal instrument by which that can be made to materialize. Sure, surely I think you would agree that conservatives also want to stress quality indeed. Uh, the, the, the whole conservative tradition, I think, places very considerable emphasis on, on the meaning of life as being essentially non-materialistic. But, but what is it that gives you the idea and gives President Johnson the idea of this moment that the government is the instrument by which we can bring poetry and meaning and spiritual satisfaction to our lives? Well, I don't think, that, I don't think that's uh, what uh, we think or what the President thinks. I think we think that insofar as these things can be dealt with publicly, <coughs> I mean, the government obviously isn't going to bring happiness or spiritual meaning into people's lives, but insofar as there are public ills, like the decay of our cities, the pollution of our environment, the destruction of beauty in our life, the quality of education, then the public, the public, through their, its instruments of government and other organizations, at every level, state, local, and federal, is the most appropriate organ to deal with those public ills. At least the experience of the last uh, hundred years, or even the period since the New Deal, proves that, that many of them are not dealt with any other way. And in your own campaign, of course, you propose public cures for public ills. Yes, but I, th I think I tried to make a very sharp limitation of that which is primarily a public concern and that which uh, isn't. I, I tend to agree with you <coughs> that, if I understand you, that the primary function uh, of government uh, is negative rather than positive. That is to say, uh, it is the job of the government to pass those laws that are necessary to reinforce the opportunities of individuals for freedom. But I, if I understand Mr. Johnson's rhetoric, which isn't always easy to do, he seems to feel that government can, uh, by artful manipulations of this and that other project, bring a new tone to American life. Uh, and this kind of ambition by government exercised over the people, uh, so often historically, I think you would agree, has been a prelude to totalitarianism, a prelude to a concern exercised by that centralized uh, uh, executive uh, for those areas of American life which are best left to individuals to dispose of through community action. Well, I think that uh, what you initially said, although I'm sure the President <coughs> would be very pleased to find that anything you said went over your head, would be that, uh, uh, that the idea of liberating the individual is exactly what uh, he's, President Johnson and the Great Society are talking about. I think the question comes in the, the scope of action that's needed <coughs> to liberate the individual. The individual who lives in a poisoned environment, who goes to poor schools, none of which he can do anything about himself, because they're not within his individual control, is 
We are trying to liberate him by creating the environment, giving him the education, providing for his liberties, uh, and giving him a society which will allow him to develop himself individually to the fullest. I think it's exactly what the founding fathers were trying <coughs> to do, and many of them were, were very good conservatives. This is what you were doing in your campaign. You talked about exactly these same issues and proposed public remedies. Well, it's quite true. They were trying to construct the founding fathers uh, an atmosphere within which the pursuit of happiness became a realizable occupation. But uh, you, do, uh, you do walk into certain difficulties, it seems to me, because uh, if you listen to President Johnson or to such persons as yourself, uh, inst instantly contradictions uh, leap to the eye between uh, the transcendent rhetoric with its concern for the individual and for the community and the actual concrete programs which seem to have a way day by day of biting in to what had originally been thought of as the individual's preserve. May I give you an example, quoting this time from you directly. You, 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 gave <coughs> you gave an important speech a year or so ago in which you said, as we advance, we will inevitably place more and more emphasis on local responsibility. Uh, only in this way can we give Americans the chance to look to their own efforts for the enrichment of their own lives very process of looking to others damages the chance for individual action which will give fuller meaning to our lives. Now that I think is a statement to which every conservative I've ever met would subscribe. Within two or three weeks after you said that, the President of the United States, of whom you are a faithful champion, advocated, for instance, A, uh, a voting rights bill which deprived the local community of the right to set up its standards provided they were uh, irrespective of race, or color, or creed. B, uh, you proposed another measure to deny to the states the right to pass right-to-work laws, giving an individual the right to work without necessarily joining the union. Uh, and three, uh, a bill to uh, remove the right of individual governors to veto projects from the poverty fund uh, if, uh, the government, if that governor found them badly designed for the community. Now, how do you handle a dialectic like this? Well, I think those are interesting examples because I think they really <coughs> prove the point, you see. Each one of those, like many of the other proposals, is designed, I think, to try to further liberate the individual. I think that the, after all, what the voting rights bill, I mean, I think the, <coughs> the dichotomy you're drawing is between uh, giving freedom to either the state government or to the federal government to act, whereas what I'm talking about is between the liberty of the individual and the power of government. Here, the federal government overrides the states in, the, in all of these cases. You use in the, the word community. You use the word local community. That's right. Uh, in the passage I quoted from you. Well, now you're back to the federal government. No, I'm trying to get back to this core of conservative thought, which is the liberty of the individual. I'll yeah. turn to that one community aspect of it in one second. And that is that each one of these <coughs> overrides <coughs> the states in the interest of giving people the right to <coughs> vote, in the interest of giving them the right to organize as labor, in the interest of giving than programs which can help them emerge from poverty. So that what they do is they override a resistant, in these cases, resistant government structures in order to further liberate the individual. Mr. Gwynne, you're going to have difficulty here because uh, we have to distinguish <coughs> excuse me, between two proposed pieces of legislation, one backed by President Johnson, one backed by Senator Dirksen. Now, both of those pieces of legislation would have accomplished the right to vote as you describe it. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Senator Dirksen proposed a law which would entitle, indeed enjoin, federal marshals to go down there and see to it 
that nobody in Alabama or in Georgia or in South Carolina was deprived of his vote by reason of race, color, or creed. I, I backed such a law. But Johnson insisted on a law which would automatically void all literacy proposals so that, in point of fact, the local community, which we are supposed here to treat with some respect, has lost the power to decide what shall be the qualifications for the exercise of the franchise. Well, I think that would be interesting, but I think that's a little, that's an incomplete description of the act. As a matter of fact, the Johnson law <coughs> simply provides that you override local requirements for registration only when a court is, can be satisfied that there is evidence of widespread or systematic racial discrimination in a particular district. That was an ex post facto. Not any, not any, but you can't, you couldn't go to place where that wasn't, didn't exist and override. No, I'm not saying it didn't exist. I'm saying what should we do about it, uh, acknowledging the fact Well, the problem with the Marshall idea is that the Marshall then has to seek out what essentially <coughs> the Attorney General tried in years before, each individual supplicant, and try to get him registered. In a place where there is adamant and systematic resistance to the right of a Negro to vote, taking Negroes one by one as they're denied will not succeed in registering Negroes except over a period of two or three hundred years, whereupon the initial ones will probably not be alive any longer. Oh, now come on. It, it seems to me that's an awfully pessimistic uh, uh, projection. About longevity? Who wants, or who wants to bring in the great society <laughs> in the next little period. Uh, uh, no, I'm saying that we so must assume that the, <clears throat> that the federal government has the resources uh, with which to guarantee the maintenance of the Constitution, uh, even in refractory states. Uh, and uh, that the use of those resources was precisely in order. But what they went ahead and did instead was simply to ordain that a specified number of states adjudged ex post facto to have been uh, guilty uh, could no longer specify their own standards so that you see such ironies as we saw uh, a little while ago where illiterate Negroes uh, in Alabama were being asked to memorize the name of whoever it was that uh, they were supposed to support. Now, th this kind of a travesty, A, certainly argues against any affiliation to the idea of the local community, and B, I think, makes rather a mockery of democracy itself. It seems to me it's a very simple problem. Uh, the ordainment of, of areas for federal action took place only <coughs> on the basis of evidence that Negroes were being denied the right to vote. You had counties, for example, in Mississippi, where although there were a majority of Negroes, there was zero Negro votes cast in the last election. But all a state has to do is to send the federal registrar's home and cease its discrimination and register <coughs> Negroes. The registrars will go home and the federal statute, the state laws will then be back in place. Doesn't seem to me that in a democracy or under the Constitution, that's much oh, of a request. Okay, let's say then we've agreed on something which I find important, you find unimportant. I find it very, un very important uh, that, that a man uh, with such highly honed uh, intellectual calipers as you dispose of sees no particular difference uh, between an effort to remedy a situation, which I granted needed remedy, by the recourse of simply repealing, in effect, that article in the Constitution which permits to the states the right to set voting qualifications and your approach, which is simply to say everybody henceforth can vote irrespective of whether he can read or write. So this, this is a difference between your brand of impatience. No, I think we both, uh, I don't think it's the brand of impatience particularly. I think it's just the knowledge, though, after experience, that taking, that trying to do it Negro by Negro and man by man with federal marshals doesn't work quickly enough or 
How do you know? Generation. How do you know? Because the federal government's had this power for quite a while, and as a matter of fact, before this voting law was passed, the Attorney <coughs> General, uh, Robert Kennedy, instituted 20 or 30 voting rights suits mm -hmm. throughout, the, uh, throughout the South, and even where you won, you, what you managed to do was to get two people registered. Well, it's also true that there hasn't been integration uh, sufficient to satisfy the requirements of the courts, let alone yourself. Why don't, doesn't the public, why, why, why aren't you here arguing that the government should take over the public schools? I Haven't you every right to be impatient with that, uh, no, as well as to be impatient with the other prospective The government failures? is using a more powerful instrument of coercion to and ensure I'm the Constitution right. is obeyed in the public sector. And I was in favor of more powerful instruments of coercion via the Dirksen bill, but you insisted on or leaping it. And I think that this is a temperamental characteristic of the great uh, uh, society man uh, whose vision is so sharp, uh, whose vision is so sharp to himself that he is extremely impatient of procedure, extremely impatient uh, of the traditional background by which certain fine balances are kept in motion. But what I'm saying, in effect, is that your talk about the emphasis on the local community strikes a lot of people as uh, uh, impudent under the circumstances. Probably Gentlemen, may we interrupt for just one more moment. We'll be back after this message. Uh, and I, I agree with you, Mr. Goodwin, that the, as Johnson put it, the end of political liberty is personal liberty. It is the individual whose freedom we primarily want. How justify, for instance, the right to work laws under that aegis? Well, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. I find defending myself defending the classical conservative positions against you, uh, Mr. Buckley, that when it's a choice between the power of the state and the liberty of the individual, that the federal government should act in the interest of the liberty of individual to give him his right to vote, attend a school, and I think we are a little bit impatient uh, about it. I think probably a hundred years of waiting would make people impatient. It's a rather long time even in a conservative democracy like ours. There, I think the right to work law, uh, again, like the other law, as you said, is a judgment that, that gives laboring men the uh, legal right to organize in an effective fashion to protect themselves <coughs> and to protect their rights and to advance their rights. And uh, the judgment as to whether this is, is or is not a, uh, an instrument of power that should be given them really rests on a judgment as to the, the difference between the power of labor and uh, management in the society. To tell you the truth, I don't regard that as a very important matter. I think the right, I'm perfectly content myself to let the right to work laws remain. They've made absolutely virtually no difference in labor management relations. It was mostly a scare. I think that's very important. The trouble is, the fact that you don't consider it yourself a matter of great importance is unfortunately, or fortunately, not a universal. I consider it a matter of great importance. Well, you're, now, you're why, why, why shouldn't I be able to uh, decide for myself what is important? I was told I couldn't go on this TV show unless I joined the union. They'd turn off the lights uh, and uh, picket and all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, uh, the Great Society is certainly behind me when I decided I want to go on television all by myself without signing a wordy constitution which guarantees me to a perpetual state of intellectual servility uh, to a group of people I've never met or, or want to meet. Well, if you're the only worker, you don't have to join a union, you know. Well, uh, un unfortunately, you'll have to negotiate that with my bosses. But in point of fact, uh, I don't really see how you can reconcile this concern for the individual with uh, that uh, particular uh, frontier of the great society, which insists 
that neither that the individual can't decide for himself, and even the states can't decide. How do you justify that? Well, you don't really. No, it's as I say, I don't regard it as an important yeah. matter, although I think it can be said <coughs> that uh, mm -hmm. uh, one of the weapons used to break up labor unions is the, the use of, uh, by, mm -hmm. anti, by people who are against labor unions, the introduction of non-labor work here. I assume that we're well, probably is, is surrounded it, is by it, unions, however, aren't we? Is it to break up labor unions to refuse to join one? Well, Prince, you, you're certainly responsible for breaking up the Republican Party by those standards. Well, we haven't quite succeeded, though. <laughs> not, <laughs> no, quite, no. not quite. Not yeah, quite. But, uh, but, but surely you don't you don't maintain that a man's free, freely arrived at desire. I must say, you not got a lot join. more in that direction than I have. I <laughs> know. No. Not, not to join an organization is, in a sense, uh, an act of hostility toward the freedom to of others. Doing it. I agree. I gather you want to get off that subject. Well, I'll be willing to say, uh, <laughs> let me just say that I think that we're not talking, we're talking about the freedom of uh, the union as an organization to require that uh, uh, the workers within a particular <coughs> unit all belong to that union in order to make its effectiveness equal to that of management. I suppose that management people can require, for example, that all its offices be stockholders, and no one would think that would be discriminatory against the non-stockholders of the country. Well, in fact, I suppose management can make pretty much its own rules about who should be a member of management. Uh, as, as regards its own organization, but I would certainly hope that people, the American Civil Liberties Union or somebody would come to my rescue if I was told uh, that I couldn't uh, uh, type on a piece of yellow paper uh, without subscribing to some uh, management's uh, dictum on uh, being a stockholder of that yellow paper company. Uh, would I? But anyway, uh, then as I remember the third point that struck me as uh, antagonistic to your own ambitions for America was the business of governors not having the right to veto poverty programs devised in Washington, D.C. You say, well, we, we've got to watch out for the individual. Now suppose you were, say, governor of California. Uh, and a particular poverty program that was designed for the Watts area, say, you, you found to be uh, inadequate. You found it was too abstract. It was done and composed in some Harvard laboratory and was unsuited to the situation. Why do you think that that governor oughtn't have the right, in behalf of his own people, to veto that project? Well, I think the reason the veto, the basic reason of, of the elimination of the veto from the project was simply it was found that some, many of the southern governors were vetoing projects designed to help Negroes, and that why? therefore... Well, I don't know why. I'd have to ask Now, come on. Why, why don't you motivate that? Because uh, that sounds like rather a slur, an uh, unnecessary one, doesn't it? Why, why, wh what, what, well, governor, what governor wants to hurt Negroes? I mean, outside the South, uh, if, if, if you want to consider that... Um, well, I think that some of the southern governors felt that the establishment of poverty programs and community <coughs> action organizations in the areas of the South for Negro citizens was not uh, something that they wanted to happen in their state or that they wanted to be behind. For, for what reason? Uh, you, you keep telling me that they don't well, want I it. I think that the reason may very well have been that they felt it would uh, dilute their political effectiveness as uh, segregationists. I'm talking about the non-segregated states. No, I think, unfortunately, the, uh, the, the reason doesn't extend to all the states, but it's very hard to draw a law that says only where governors don't want to help Negroes, you won't have a veto. Well, uh, uh, but then, of course, there, there are governors who, who disagree with you, uh, and there, there are governors who, um, so far as one can judge, are highly respectful of the rights of the Negro minority, 
Uh, and uh, I think are super anxious to help them. For instance, uh, Governor Rockefeller, Governor Rockefeller uh, has, I think, done everything that he could do to establish that he's in favor of civil rights, in favor of helping the Negro minority, but he vetoed one of those poverty things, and everybody went mad with frustration. But I think that he could, he could quite defensively and intelligibly motivate that without recourse to racist motives, which, which you're imputing. Oh, no, I'd be glad to have Governor Rockefeller have that power. I'm uh -huh, not worried okay. about Governor Rockefeller. Now, don't but don't you see what it really comes down to is who are you worried about and who are you not worried about? Uh, and it's a, it's a very cozy sensation, I imagine, uh, for you to uh, proceed to craft a great society which permits you to vouchsafe those rights and those liberties to those people that you're not worried about. Well, you're not oh, worried I about don't. me, for instance. And under the circumstances, you can understand this conservative distrust some of your rhetoric. Every time I get one of those letters asking me to contribute to the National Review <laughs> <laughs> because I'm essential to the cause of American conservatism, I begin to worry. <laughs> there. But well, uh, I wish I was. Uh, but I do think that uh, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say that, <coughs> or we're not trying to do it. We're trying to say that in our judgment, if you want to help poor people in many areas, that to permit a governor who is not sympathetic to the idea of helping some groups to have a veto is bad. Why don't you write that into law? We then law? present it to the... Why don't you write that into law and say all governors who are unsympathetic will not be able to exercise this veto well, that's power? fine with me, but I don't think Congress will do it. We only present these things to the duly elected Congress of the United States. They then decide whether to write. <coughs> As a matter of fact, they haven't taken the veto out, so I guess they think it's important. No, but it's a proposal of the great society. It's a proposal right. of Our judgment Johnson. is it will more effectively help poor people that way, and if Congress wants to do it, fine. But, I mean, we are really haven't quite <coughs> yet come to the point of sitting up there and drawing up laws and issuing them by ourselves. Well, you don't acknowledge an, an awful lot of restraint. So you tell me this. Has it ever occurred to you to desire a social objective, the means towards whose realization you shrink from? Oh, very many. For instance? Hmm? Well, I think that what I, one of the things I think of, for instance, is what you talked about before, which is trying to increase the spiritual community content of American life, but uh, yet I think that there's no way to do that. I think no, I say who's, who's indicating, for instance, uh, I mean, just to give you a, a silly example, but, but to focus on what I'm trying to say, suppose we decided to shoot everybody who believes in segregation. You would shrink from that means, wouldn't you? Yes. Now, now somewhere between that and, let's say, uh, the right uh, of the governor to veto a poverty program, program, if he thinks that it is unsuitable to his own situation, you would stop, right? That is to say, at a certain point you think that means are not suitable for the realization of a particular end, right? That's right. Now, you go, however, much further up the scale in conservatism, don't you? It's perfectly all right to repeal the right of individual states to set their own voting qualifications. It's perfectly all right to keep a man from having the right to work without joining a union perfectly all right to dispossess the governors of their antique prerogatives. But somewhere along the line, you must stop. Now, where does the great society say, at this point, however we much we want this, we're not going to do well, it I think because to do so is to send the one of the reasons that we stop here, again, uh, point out all of those instances are <coughs> the instances not, not of inf infringements on the liberty of the individual, but on, the indivi on state power. And the federal government, as it historically has, especially under democratic administrations, overriding state power in order to secure the liberty of, of American citizens as individuals, either to give them an opportunity to rise through poverty. Mm -hmm. well, I think I 
when you talk about infringements of individual liberty and freedom, then it seems to me that you, you arrive at a stopping point. For example, I noticed you wrote once that about the loudspeakers they put in martini olives. Now, even if putting loudspeakers in all the martini olives in New York would enable you to carry out the purposes of the Great Society, I'd be against that. Aesthetically. <laughs> Gentlemen, on that note, may we interrupt briefly once again. We'll be back after this message. Uh, Mr. Goodwin, I think that more, more and more, uh, I, I am afraid of what I would consider sort of the abuse of rhetoric, i.e., rhetoric conscripted uh, from its traditional role as defining a traditional set of arrangements on over towards the definition of certain other set of arrangements with which they are not really in congruity. Does that make any sense to you? It does. I think it's what uh, Norman Mailer, who you have admired in your column, uh, refers to as totalitarian prose. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, he right. says that. And I agree with that. I think that... Uh, you don't write any, do you? Uh, I try not to, but uh, sometimes we're under pressure. Yeah. And uh, I do think that uh, it does get to be a point at which rhetoric becomes so designed more to stifle thought than to stimulate it, and I think that's, that's a bad point for public rhetoric. I think we've seen periods in our past and, and in our present when that isn't true, but unfortunately it is often, it is often true. Now in the, in the passage of mine you quoted, I did, I've been trying to, I'm talking about specifics. I do think it's very important in America that we get back to placing greater reliance on local responsibility. I think that the liberal position of federal rights or federal power as being the, the great source of reform in this country has now been outmoded and outpaced by the changes in our society. That the great problem, or one of the great problems in this country, is the sense of futility that people have in control over their own destiny, over their environment, their cities, over the decisions of life and death. And that we need to devise greater techniques for allowing people to participate in the great enterprises of the society. Now, it doesn't mean they need not be public, but it does mean that, like, as the Peace Corps has done on a very small scale, they should be able to involve the individual. That's why I propose, for example, turning a lot of the foreign aid program over to the states to administer. In fact, I even wrote you a letter asking for your support in that, but I didn't get an answer. And I'm uh, sorry. I never <laughs> got the letter. I you <laughs> You'd have heard from it. Uh, in any event. But I think that but the difference uh, between is because is I think it's not the debate, the old debate over federal government versus states' rights was whether or not anything ought to be done or not. Now the debate, in my mind, is over how it ought to be I saw that very clearly. I mean, in your campaign, you proposed to beautify New York. You proposed even to build a bikeway along 2nd Avenue elevated, wasn't it, the elevated from 1st to 125th Street? I thought you might put subway tracks down the middle of it and let the bikes run along the side and call it an L. That's <laughs> what I forgot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were going to pay bounties to informers, uh, increase uh, crime. Increase bounties. Increase bounties. Yeah. And, uh, increase the pay of Keep teachers in slum, in slum schools. The interesting thing about all of these proposals is that, although many I don't agree with, and, I, and, and there are others like legalizing gambling and narcotics that I'm not qualified to comment on, is uh, that essentially you're saying that it is government that ought to meet these kinds <coughs> of human needs, which are the same range of needs that are being met by the uh, great society. I think that's a really a false dichotomy to suggest that people who are historically aware of, um, of the dangers of the omnipotent state are necessarily anarchists. I'm no, no more an anarchist than my mentor, uh, Edmund Burke, 
Uh, and I don't think Edmund Burke would have found anything uh, against uh, the bikeway. No, uh, the bikeway. No, no. Yeah. And it was Edmund Burke who, uh, after all, commented on first reading The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith that he didn't know there was a man alive who so faithfully represented his own views on economics. Uh -huh. And, of course, it was Adam Smith uh, who uh, told us what the proper limits of government action were. But I thought it was interesting, mm -hmm. though. I mean, you want to increase pay for teachers in some schools, Johnson wants to. You want to beautify New York, Johnson wants to beautify New York. You want to put require yeah, all automobiles to have pollution it's devices. It's not so a Johnson's business, is my point. It's well, not a He's only president. I'm a New Yorker in good standing. In fair standing, I'm I'm a New Yorker, and uh, I really don't see why uh, when every time President Johnson flies into town, he has to sprinkle out gifts like a visiting rajah and tell us that he's going to give us a hundred thousand dollars for the study of juvenile delinquency in Bedford Stuyvesant. He really doesn't have to do that. Uh, the resources well, are, sort of are, are him, here. Doesn't he? Because, well, well the problem he, he is the resources aren't here. That's why you, for example, had to propose a new tax on corporations in your campaign mm -hmm. to try to raise some the of the resources. The reason the resources aren't here, uh, Mr. Uh, Goodwin, is because you've been spending so much of my money in Washington the last few years. Uh, I suggested a basic rearrangement on the basis uh, of which this local, these local communities, which your rhetoric here says you so much admire, actually will have not only responsibilities, but means to do so. Do you want to hear my favorite amendment? I want to say the first that most of the uh, money has gone for the bonds, which you don't I'm subtracting seem to oppose. That. I'm yeah. subtracting that. But my favorite amendment would be one which would declare that no state of the union whose average income is above the national medium uh, would qualify for any federal welfare measures. I don't see any point at all in round-trip dollars going from New York to Washington uh, and back simply to receive the benediction of President Johnson. So it, it isn't that, that conservatives don't want to do anything. Uh, it's that we do observe the traditional arrangements by which phrases such as you use uh, have meaning, acquire meaning. Well, I think that involves a different kind of concept, I think. Uh, I mean, I've made some specific proposals for the phrase, I think, something like the Peace Corps turning foreign aid, or other structures of allowing the states and cities. but. I mean, the idea of who does it seems to be confused a little bit with the idea of where the money comes from. They're not at all identical problems. It seems to me it's very possible, for example, as is done under many, under a federal aid to education now, the money is given to a local school district <coughs> which you draws up subject to state veto or state approval, <coughs> whatever its own procedure is, the way in which that money will be used. There's a plan, and it's a local plan, but the resources are federal. Uh, and I think the question as to who has the responsibility and the question of the source of funds are different problems. The only way you can confuse them, it seems to me, is by taking a view of the United States as, as uh, 50 uh, sort of separate uh, sovereignties. It seems to me that, that a poor person in New York who is not getting welfare payments, for example, from the state of New York, whether he is or not, or in, let me take Massachusetts, that's <coughs> where I come from, shouldn't be penalized as an American citizen simply because other people in the state make a lot of money. Well, but aren't you suggesting that for some reason the national legislature uh, exercises uh, uh, compassion and generosity in a sense which in which local legislators would not? And if so, let me ask you how come it is that the people of New York vote for people in the national legislature, uh, in le legislature, and in effect enjoin them to do exactly the same thing? That is to say, if you if you're here to say that the New York people of New York would not themselves be deploying their own resources 
look after their own poor, then how come those same people all voted for Johnson who does? Well, I think that the uh, one reason, partly perhaps, has been the makeup of many, I don't know enough about New York, but the makeup of many of the, uh, of many of the state legislatures, another has been the quality of the state legislatures. I come from Massachusetts, for example, <coughs> where corruption and incompetence and uh, bribery and all the rest in the state legislature <coughs> is uh, a, a fact of life. I think one of the most serious problems in this country has been the quality of state government. And uh, I think that if state government can and does improve in quality, I'd be all in, we could do things to the states. I'd all be in all favor of amendment that said that you might if the states met <laughs> these problems that uh, you don't need an amendment, I think an act of Congress would do it. You might even ratify the Constitution. Yeah, well, we, we got did. tired away. Yes, we did do that. <laughs> we took care of that a lot quite a while ago. I think. Well, and uh, there again, I think not your uh, constitution, ours. I, I think that uh, that it is significant that that once again your 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 rhetoric does betray, as for instance Kenneth Galbraith does, and I know how much you admire him. He's sort of impatient with the local people to provide local solutions according to their own lights. Now I can understand this. Uh, I can understand the appeal of elitism, of sort of an aristocratic overview of the kind described by, of by the United States. Uh, but but all I ask is that you stop using my rhetoric when you advance those goals. You see, well, what you what you wrote here and I read, uh, I would have taken great pride in having written. Uh, and yet, after all, there being these sharp divisions between us, either you or I has the right to use with sincerity phrases about how we want to place more emphasis on local responsibility. So, so it's this uh, preemption of my rhetoric that, that, that I think is, is really going too far. Well, I really think, uh, Mr. Buckley, I think that uh, that's one of the great, I think, in, you know, it's one of the great things <coughs> about the great society that it's willing to take ideas from any source. And, uh, <laughs> no, in, and an I idea, think that uh, these it, are words you're seems taking, to me not that ideas. It's, uh, it's uh, really a tribute to the Democratic Party and the great society that it listens to you and to takes your ideas seriously. I think that the, the great tragedy of the Republican Party probably has been that it hasn't and, uh, and will be in the future. I, th I think that may be true, at least in this, this element of it. Maybe the other tragedy is that you're the only Republican anyone knows. But I think that uh, this seems to me that the rhetoric is exactly what we're trying to implement. Many of the federal programs, like the program for the cities, the new demonstration, or for water pollution, the newest programs, the ones that are on the frontier, are programs which ask the states and the localities to draw up plans, to set up organizations <coughs> for actions, and will provide federal funds for those plans. They are not like the old WPA, where somebody comes in and runs a federal program. There are programs like that, and many of them are necessary. But the two big breakthroughs this year, for example, the idea of taking entire watersheds and doing something about pollution, which is a matter of concern to you, or to do something about the problems of the cities. Both say that when the state and community draw up programs and prepare for action, then federal funds will be supplied. Well, that's what I mean by trying to get back to the community. And I think it's a Gentlemen, very important thing. Gentlemen, we'll be back trend. in just about a moment after this message. Mr. Buckley, Mr. Goodwin, we have questions from members of our audience. Uh, after the question is directed to either of you and it is answered, if the other party has a comment or a rebuttal, please uh, feel free to do so. Our first question is from Mr. Arthur Byrne. Mr. Byrne, please, would you stand and direct your question to one of our participants? Uh, the question is for Mr. Buckley. Mr. Buckley, in your judgment, do you believe the federal government is, is disrupting 
our system of checks and balances in order to accomplish its great society goal? Yes, sir, I, I most, most emphatically do. Uh, this seems to be one of the principal objectives of the federal government, to dissipate state boundaries. Uh, what I find especially teasing about it is that they proceed with their campaign uh, to uh, dispose of these boundaries, but combine it uh, with a rhetoric which keeps talking about the importance of the individual states. And in that schizophrenia that results, it's very hard for voters and for people to recognize what the meaning of the great society actually is. Quite usually, uh, of course, the system of checks and balances ordinarily refers to those within the federal government. I don't know if that's what you meant or not, between the president, Congress, and the, and the Supreme Court. But it seems fascinating to me to find that Mr. Buckley is basically, seems to be basically more concerned with the ability of <coughs> or, uh, Ross Barnett or Paul Johnson, Johnson to veto a poverty project, or George Wallace's freedom to run a literacy test denied to halt the power and ability of Negroes to vote, whereas our concern seems to be more with uh, the freedom of the individuals to learn, to vote, and to emerge from poverty. And yet it seems to me in light of traditional conservatism that that would be the position that Mr. Buckley would be behind. And I'm encouraged by the fact that in his campaign, of course, when it came to the actions of the city of New York, he uh, did back such positions in some fields. And in fact, proposed two constitutional amendments to increase, as he saw, the liberty of the individual. Although I disagree with that judgment, I think the technique he used is laudable. We have a question now from Edward Kanikowski. Mr. Buckley, you stated that the federal government should take a negative position in relation to its powers. Do you believe that Mr. Johnson's Great Society has deviated from this position in relation to its legislative proposals of the last three years? Y yes, sir, I do. I think that the most uh, important function uh, of the government is to prevent uh, one person from acquiring such power uh, as has the effect of draining the freedom uh, of other people. That's why I say that the government's function is primarily negative. The Bill of Rights, for instance, is really a roster of things that Congress can't do. And the Constitution itself, historically viewed, uh, is, uh, is an instrument that describes, to a large extent, things that Congress mustn't do. You may remember that the old doges in Venice, when they took their oaths of office, uh, their oaths of office consisted in simply an enumeration of all the things they promised not to do to the people of Venice. And historically, I think the freedom tends to advance primarily through negative rather than positive action. Because the trouble with positive action is that the government has a way of putting itself in your own shoes and deciding what it is that you uh, ought to want. Let me just finally say that I'm rather disappointed at, at uh, after an hour with Mr. Goodwin that he should say that I'm in favor of laws that would permit Governor Barnett uh, to deprive the Negro of a vote, since I specifically backed the Dirksen proposal, which precisely would deprive the Barnetts of the right to deprive the Negroes of the votes. What I am against is illiterates voting, whether Negro or white. Uh, and I do not believe that my freedom is enhanced or anybody's freedom is enhanced when we have democratic government if we encourage illiterates to vote. Well, I didn't say, I hope <coughs> I didn't say that you were for laws which give them the right to deny people to vote, but simply that your concerns seem to be more with Mr. Barnett's power being infringed, liberty being infringed, than with that of the individual under him and being oppressed by him being infringed. It's very simple for the states to oppose literacy tests. All they have to do is cease 
using them as instruments of discrimination. Ten years. There. Over a period. Under, under the existing law, they can't even appeal for ten years to keep illiterates from voting. Only if you have a history of uh, racial discrimination. But I was interested in your reading of the Constitution because the fact, the fact is that the entire Constitution, except for a couple of clauses of Article Two and the Bill of Rights, which were amendments to the Constitution, consists of an enumeration of positive powers granted to the federal government. It says Congress shall have the power to levy and collect taxes, to regulate commerce, and et cetera. And it's one a very broad grant of power to the President, to the Congress, and to the Supreme Court. And in fact, in the Federalist Papers and commentators at the time realized, uh, even in fact, that, that the potential power of the executive within that Constitution was, was vast. And there were great debates on that. So that the Constitution, in its wording and in its explicit structure, envisaged a government would be an, which would be an active agent of the people that it represented, which would try to create the conditions, which are very different now than they envisaged, and more difficult and complex, under which the individual could realize the pursuit of happiness. But it's clear that government was intended to be an active agent in the most conservative mind. Well, I, and I'm not suggesting that they, it should be completely inactive. I, uh, I suggested that Adam Smith had a very good guide as to what were the positive roles uh, of the government, keeping the peace, for instance, uh, providing for national monuments and uh, administering justice, conducting foreign policy. But by, I said, historically viewed, the Constitution was primarily a means by which the peace should be uh, secured. And that is largely uh, a negative function, is it not? It, it, it's the idea of keeping the person who wants to disturb the peace at bay, and that I consider rather negative than positive. Well, that but, but now you, you want to make everybody happy by some Oh, no, I don't. Uh, it wasn't my idea to make everybody happy. That was Thomas Jefferson's idea. Uh, and the Constitution, the power of enumeration, or at least give them the opportunity to pursue happiness, if I may qualify. Gentlemen, okay. I believe we do have one more question from a member of our audience. This gentleman here. My name's Richard Stevenson. Mr. Buckley, um, several of the issues that have come up have been what I think we'd all agree to be national issues in the sense of poverty, in the sense of water pollution, air pollution there. And within the confines of most of the states in the United States, these are problems. Now, if we uh, let the states take action here, then there will be a very, uh, some states will take action, other states won't take action. Now, by letting the federal government at least spearhead the drive and hopefully ask for state uh, cooperation in the sense of ideas, it seems to me that, that then we get to a state where we wouldn't have to have a Negro, to take one example, a Negro in the South move his family to the North so that he could vote, or a person who wants to breathe clean air have to move to a different state, which had seen, t seen uh, to take action. Uh, to move to that state and disrupt his life to achieve something that really every citizen in the United States should have. Uh, well, I, I certainly sympathize with, with your point of view and want to say very briefly just two things. Number one, the problems that we face uh, today are, are as nothing compared with the problems that we faced historically. The problem of taming a frontier, the, the problem of not only attending to the poverty of the very few, but the poverty uh, of the many. Those problems were in fact solved. This has been historically a nation of problem solvers, uh, and they were solved without recourse in most instances uh, to the federal government. What has happened Mr. Buckley, today I'm afraid we're going to have to interrupt you.
Thank you so much, Mr. Goodwin. Good night.